All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Erwin Bello. Erwin was formerly a research scientist at Google Brain and is now on the founding team at a stealth AI startup. Before we get into today's conversation, please be sure to take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Erwin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We're going to be digging into your research on sparse expert models, as well as some of the trends you're following in large language models. But before we do that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning. Yeah, so I have a background in applied math and stats. I studied both in France, then went to Stanford as a grad student, mostly statistics and computer science. And uh, during that time studying, I slowly got into AI and mostly deep learning, starting with computer vision, also doing some natural language processing. And, you know, I thought that that line of work was really interesting. And so after graduating, I went to Google Brain to keep working on deep learning. I spent roughly five years there, mostly doing deep learning research, some product stuff as well. Worked on a bunch of, you know, on a wide range of projects, like starting with uh, combinatorial optimization and ranking. I also worked on some AutoML where you use machine learning to learn machine learning itself. Mm -hmm. And most recently, I worked on computer vision and also large-scale uh, models with a focus on this new exciting class of architectures called sparse expert models. Nice. That is a great segue. Why don't we jump into that topic? I guess we should start at the top. What is a sparse expert model? Yeah, so perhaps the, the easiest way to define them is by contrast to regular dense models. Mm -hmm. So regular dense models apply the same parameters to all inputs. And by contrast, sparse expert networks dynamically select which parameters to use for each input. So that means that part of your neural networks, like parts of your neural network are activated on a per example basis. In practice, if you have a batch of examples, all of the networks or parts will be activated. But for a single example, that single example is only going to see part of the network parameters. And so this allows to increase model capacity in the sense that you're working with much more parameters without increasing computation or flops because each input, and in that context, input can refer to either a sentence or a token. Each input only interacts with the same number of parameters and therefore has the same amount of computation applied to it. The case that you're looking at here with these sparse expert models, are you specifically targeting extreme levels of sparsity in the data or? No. Okay. So yeah, usually other examples of sparsity can refer to the data sets. Right. Or for example, you know, in reinforcement learning, people will talk about sparse rewards. Mm -hmm. Sparse export models, like the sparsity isn't the model. Yeah. The, the reason why it's called sparse is because they're equivalent to having very large dense models where parts of the model weights are zeroed out. And so if you look at your matrix multiplies, uh, at your matrices in your model, mm -hmm. having a set of experts is the same as having a very large matrices with a lot of zeros. Mm -hmm. Experts in this case refers to dynamically swapping out parameters based on characteristics. Yeah. So an expert in this case, like it's sort of a independently learned 
neural network that has unique weights. Mm -hmm. And so typically you'll have a bunch of them, like let's say you're working with a hundred experts, an input comes in, you have a router network that decides where to send that output, that input, you know, you might send it to only one expert or three experts. Usually it's two experts. Mm -hmm. So the experts take the input, compute an output, and then at the end of your layer, the expert outputs get uh, sort of averaged with expert probabilities as well. On top of that, when you train these architectures, you have a loss balancing objective to make sure that all the experts are used roughly uniformly because you don't want to be in a situation where a lot of your experts are unused during training because that's bad for utilization. But yeah, at a very high level, this is equivalent to having a very large dense matrix with a lot of zeros. Mm -hmm. And is having some large number of independently trained experts, I guess the way I originally heard you describe this or what I thought I heard was not necessarily these independently trained experts or networks, but swapping out parameters at a particular layer of a single network based on the input. Are those kind of functionally equivalent? Yeah, that's that's correct. So typically you'd have a dense layer. Mm -hmm. You have an input, it's multiplied in the easiest case, it's multiplied by a matrix and that matrix has weights and it corresponds to a single expert, right? Mm -hmm. In the case of mixture of experts, now you have a lot of experts, you know, it can go up to hundreds, even more. Mm -hmm. And you select each input is routed with a network that is also trained. Yeah. So everything is trained jointly, but that router sends an input to an expert and that expert does the computation. And the other experts do not get to see that input. So that's why it's sparse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this allows you know the networks to like vastly expand the number of parameters because instead of having one expert in the dense of a, in the case of a dense network, now you have let's say a hundred, and so these these layers have hundred times more parameters. These parameters are not sort of functionally equivalent to dense parameters because they're sparse and and so it's not the same as just hundred xing your model size but it does bring a lot of benefits at pre-training and now at when fine-tuning on downstream applications as well. Mm -hmm. And are each of the experts also typically deep networks or did they tend to be shallower networks than... So they're pretty shallow. Okay. So it's usually your entire deep neural net is pretty deep. So let's say 50 layers. Mm -hmm. And But each expert layer is usually you know, a two-layer neural net, actually. Okay. You know, you can do it one or two, like we do two, because paper is tied to our choice of activation functions, but those are pretty shallow. Mm -hmm. And we find that this is kind of the best, this gives the best results. Another thing uh, we found in that paper is that you don't want to use export layers everywhere mm -hmm. because that leads to a bad uh, sort of quality to latency trade-off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the name of the game in a lot of this research is to get the most performance at a given training cost or inference budget, right? Yeah. And so when you do sort of, when you optimize your architecture, what you do is like you're trying to get good accuracy, but maintaining the network speed. And so for that, we find that having export layers 
every four blocks of layers is a good choice. And that's what we went with in that paper. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of the scalability of the method? How well does it scale and what did you have to do to, to get it to scale? So just zooming out a little bit with mixture of export models. Now you have two dimensions that are different. So you have the number of parameters versus the flops or the amount of computation. Mm -hmm. Usually they're the same. For dense models, they're the same because more parameters means more computations as well. With export models, if you scale the number of experts, you're not scaling the number of computation that is applied, for example. Mm -hmm. And so this adds like an additional dimension that makes the problem a little bit more difficult to study. But so yeah, actually scaling mixture of export models was kind of a unsolved problem that motivated our research on the, on the subject. And so one thing that people noticed was that they were able to scale the number of experts to so the number of parameters. But when they were scaling the flops or like just the, the amount of computation applied throughout the model, training these models would usually lead to instabilities. Mm -hmm. So until recently, these models were quite unreliable at scale, at computation scale, flop scale. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one contribution of our recent work with my coworkers at Google Brain was to figure out how do we make this large scale mixture of experts train stably, right? So, you know, we did a large scale study of quality versus stability trade-offs. One thing we found is that usually the, the techniques to improve stability hurt accuracy or performance quite a bit. And so that's, you know, that's not super satisfying. We ended up sort of repurposing an oscillatory loss called the Z loss. So that loss is usually applied to the final sort of uh, layer logits. Now we applied it in the router of the experts. So again, the router is the, the small neural network that takes inputs and decides where to which experts to send them. And so one thing we found was that when we apply an oscillatory loss on the router to sort of make the probability distribution over which experts to send each input, we make that distribution more, more smooth. We found that this helped a lot with stability. So that's one of the, the contribution of the paper. Mm -hmm. Another, you know, I would say line of work was that you want to design these models and scale them while taking your hardware into considerations. So that process of routing inputs to experts requires your accelerators to communicate between them. So let's say in our case, we were working with TPUs. And so one simple way to see it is like, let's say you have one expert per TPU, right? Okay. Depending on where you want to send an input, you're going to have to send that token to a different TPU. And so there are communication costs associated with that process. And so there's kind of yeah a requirement to think ahead and think about the trade-off of communication versus computation to uh, set some of the model dimensions optimally. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing we explored a bit that we explained in the paper. And did you set those dimensions empirically or did you develop some formulation for where you, how you might optimize that? A little bit of both. I would say it's mostly empirical, but you know in what direction to go usually. Because So the, the process is usually, you know, you'll, you'll train a network and you'll both look at its loss or accuracy. And at the same time, you'll profile the network. And so you'll see, okay, how that much time is spent on 
communication in that layer. That much time is spent on computation in that layer. And as you run more and more experiments, you start getting a sort of a, a mental model for how to improve performance or improve latency without hurting the other. So that was kind of an iterative process, mostly. Mm -hmm. Going back to your previous point about the introduction of Z-Loss, was it clear in the process of designing the architecture that that was what you needed to do? Or how did you get to, oh, Z-Loss is going to fix this? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the credit goes to one of my collaborators, Barrett, who figured it out. But no, so we started by exploring sort of all the classic techniques to improve stability. Mm-hmm. Usually it's like you inject some noise so that if the model goes unstable, it's used to working with noise. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it can recover from that instability. Another technique is that you clip activations mm-hmm. so that the model doesn't output activations that are out of its usual range. But these techniques, we found that they hurt model quality a lot. So that's not satisfying. I think we thought about the Z-loss in the context of a round of errors and numerical precision. Okay. So, you know, one direction that a lot of recent large-scale modeling work is exploring is to reduce, to use a lower precision format. Formats. A quantization? Exactly, quantization. Yeah. <laughs> because this enables more efficient you know, communication costs between processors and their memories, also faster computation, and just also less memory requirement for storing these tensors and activations. Mm-hmm. The issue with lower precision formats or quantization is that it comes at the expense of larger round of errors, mm-hmm. right? Because depending on which precision format you have, sort of a minimum distance between two consecutive floating points. Right. And so, yeah, if you use lower precision, it's faster, but larger round of errors. And in certain cases, this round of errors can lead to instabilities that you can't recover from. Mm -hmm. This is when, you know, the training loss all of a sudden explodes and you don't recover from that point in the weight space once you reach that. And so what the Z-loss does is that, so it's a little penalty that you add on top of the logits of the router mm-hmm. to encourage these logits to be small in value. And because they're smaller, they're more accurately modeled in floating point. And so what we found is that, so first of all, whenever you use logits, you want to use sort of FP32 format, like kind of a high precision format, because these logits are like exponentiated. And so... If there's a small round of error in the logits, there's going to be a much larger round of error in the exponentiated logit, which are the probabilities. Mm-hmm. But we found that, so, you know, that's a trick that a lot of people know and most of these architectures are using. It's like, yeah, you use float 16 everywhere or bfloat 16 everywhere. But in your softmax functions or when you have logits, you use, you cast your inputs to float 32. But that wasn't enough for the router. And so the idea was like, yeah, let's have this additional loss to make sure that these logits are even smaller so that they, are, they can be more accurately modeled. And is the, to be clear, were you also using quantization in your process or was it more you know, quantization in general introduces noise and Z-loss is used to fight quantization noise? Maybe it'll work with our noise. Yeah, so... Our architectures, you know, we use Bfloat 16, which is a precision format with 16 bits, mm-hmm. which is slightly different from, uh, well, actually quite different from 
FP16, but you know, Bfloat16 is supported on TPUs and he has sort of a larger range of numbers it can represent, but at the cost of also larger round of errors compared to FP16. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we already knew of this trick of always using full precision or FP32 when you're in logits or before applying softmax or exponentiation. So we already kind of did that by default. Okay. You know, we're not the ones that figure out that trick out. I think we explain it pretty well. We know we go in depth in that paper, trying to serve as a guide for people who want to design large-scale models and sparse models in general. Mm -hmm. But we didn't invent that. What we figured out, though, was that this wasn't enough in the router. So remember that the router, which expert to send each tokens to? In practice, you know, the router outputs a probability distrib distribution over all of the experts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is implemented by a softmax, right? Mm -hmm. You take, you have a scalar for, or like a log probability for where to send the expert, the, the, your input token. You take a softmax of that. And so we thought if FP32 is not enough, what can we do? Right? Like one thing you can do is to push these logits to be smaller so that round of errors are even less. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. What did you find experimentally overall with the method? What what data sets did you benchmark it on and, and what kind of results did you see? Yes, so we pre-train on mostly on C4, like common crawl, mm -hmm. which is a few hundred billions or even more, depending on how you filter tokens. But so one of the issues that we also solved in that paper was that people were having sort of uncertain quality when fine-tuning this mix of export models. So usually the way you get state-of-the-art on this NLP task is by pre-training large language models for quite some time, like hundreds of billions of tokens, and then fine-tuning on the task of interest. And so sparse models were showing a lot of promise in the pre-training phase where you, you would see, you know, speed-ups around five, four to seven X. So that would mean like, instead of training a dense model for like 10 days, I can get the same results with a sparse model for two days, trained for two days, mm -hmm. but only at pre-training. When you would move to that sec second phase of fine tuning, yeah, like the sort of improvement of the sparse model over the dense model would kind of like vanish. That was kind of a big issue, right? Meaning pre-training took just as long as with a dense model or pre-training took way longer and undid all the gains on? So fine tuning undid all the gains. Okay. Usually fine tuning is, is faster because the data sets are faster. So you worry less about sort of the, the duration of fine tuning. But fine-tuning undid all the gains. Okay. So that was the second issue we addressed in that work. The first one being that these models didn't scale reliably because of instabilities. We, we run a lot of experiments on fine-tuning and we identified a rather counter-intuitive property, which is that the way you fine-tune sparse models is quite different than the way you want to fine-tune dense models. Hmm. And so if you just take the same hyperparameters, that you usually take for dense models. Mm -hmm. Those hyperparameters are pretty bad for sparse models and actually using them for fine tuning will undo all the gains that you had from pre-chain. And so we had to like, we come up with sort of hyperparameter recommendations in the paper. Usually you want to increase the noise at a high level. You want to increase the noise when fine tuning sparse export models. And we believe that this is because sparse models are more over prone to overfitting. 
right? Mm-hmm. With sparse models, you have a much larger modeling capacity because you have way more parameters. Right. And so there's a risk of overfilling on these smaller fine-tuning data sets. Another thing that, you know, is a potential hypothesis, there's no way to, no one has really verified that yet, but I think there's kind of anecdotic evidence from a couple of papers that this is the case, is that there is a range of parameters versus computation that is optimal for sparse models. And you don't want to deviate too much from that range. So, you know, as I said earlier, now the amount of compute and the number of parameters are not necessarily related anymore. Because when you increase the number of experts, you increase parameters, but you don't increase computation. And a bunch of papers have tried, yeah, let's use a thousand experts. Right. And so you you have a dense model, like a sparse model with trillion of parameters, but relatively much fewer computations. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's some evidence that this is a bad scenario and that you want to keep in a more, you want to stay in a more reasonable ratio of parameters versus compute. And yet there's this like maybe somewhat instantiated theory that parameters correspond to knowledge mm-hmm. and computation corresponds to intelligence, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever nebulous definitions of knowledge of, uh, and intelligence you want to work with. But I think this kind of makes sense, right? It's like more parameters, like parameters can encode knowledge and computation refer to, yeah, how much computation, how much can you sort of modify an input? So that kind of makes sense to me. And this is also what's supported by some of these experimental results. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were all of the tasks that you were looking at in the paper NLP tasks? Yes. And is the method applicable to other types of tasks? Vision, for example? Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's actually been applied to vision kind of concurrently. Okay. Like the first use of mixture of expert models was for NLP, but yeah, it's been done in vision uh, since. Mm -hmm. This is really like a modeling or like like a new class of architectures. Mm -hmm. You can apply it to different modalities, different tasks. I think maybe NLP and maybe textual the textual domains, I think, intuitively might make more sense because tokens are kind of sparse in NLP. In language. Yeah. Whereas vision, I feel like it's, it's a bit more continuous. So, mm-hmm. And do you see this these types of models as being something that uh, a tool on the shelf or in the tool bag and under a certain set of conditions might be the tool that you reach for? Or do you see it as more of a a step in evolution and this is what we're going to be doing as a standard approach at some point in time? Mm. So I think our paper tries to take it from the former to the latter. Okay. So this is definitely, you know, like an additional tool, not tool shelves in the deep learning toolbox per se. But the results are compelling enough that mm-hmm. this is something you seriously want to consider. Again, as I said, there are quite some technical details in getting them to work reliably. Also, especially making them fast on your hardware and software stack. So, you know, as I explained before, like depending on some of the communication costs on your hardware, you might want to set mm-hmm. this mixture of exports differently. Then there's also a question at inference which is that, you know, if you do inference for a single sort of input, it's very inefficient because you have all these other experts that aren't used at the same time. 
And so I would mostly use them for like batch inference when you know that all of the exports are going to be used. Another thing that makes inference a little bit more complicated is that, you know, with a dense model, if you have a very small batch size, you know, it can fit on few accelerators. But now sparse models may have much more, you know, way more parameters. And so you need a large number of GPUs or TPUs also at inference. So, and again, that may only be worth it if you're, you know, if you have high throughput, like a lot of queries per second, then you can batch things together. But uh, I would say there are definitely something to consider seriously. It's just, it takes a little bit more technical expertise. And there are also a lot of other things that I think are very exciting in the space at the moment that people should also consider. They're kind of complementary. Mixture of exports I really see as like this new class of architectures that I think in 10 years, it's going to be like, wow, people were really applying like, all the same parameters to all inputs, like that's kind of insane, right? <laughs> I, I want to drill down on the idea of new class of architectures. One question that was emerging for me is, in some ways, it sounds like a technique, and in other ways, it sounds like an architecture, meaning, you know, there's part of me that wants to, hey, can we just take off-the-shelf BERT or something and apply mixture of experts at individual layers? Mm-hmm. But you've also articulated that there are constraints around the number of consecutive layers that you'd want to have, for example, that suggest that it's not ever going to be a plug and play kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about? I think it's kind of this, if you think about BERT and GPT, these architectures have also been optimized, right? Like mm-hmm. the way that the model dimensions are set or like the normalization, the activations functions, like People have optimized these over the years. Yeah. And the fact that we recommend, you know, hey, maybe apply a sparse layer every four layers, that's just an optimization that we figured out and that people can apply directly. Mm-hmm. Or in like some of our recommendations on how to set up some of the expert-related dimensions based on the hardware is also something that we figured out that people can apply directly. Mm-hmm. I will say it's harder to understand and to work with than... Uh, dense models, but for some of these large-scale runs that costing in the millions of dollars, mm-hmm. this is something that is worth figuring out. Yeah. And maybe another way to ask my question is if, you know, knowing what you know and having this tool available, you wanted to create kind of best-in-class large-scale language model, would you, like, start with BERT or GPT or something and try to apply mixture of experts to it? Or would you start with what you know about mixture of experts and try to build off of that to get to a language model? Does that question make sense? Yeah, I see what you mean. I would start with the easiest, which is, you know, starting from GPT or BERT. Okay. And then like reading, like, I think we really wrote this paper as a sort of a design guide for uh, using mixture of experts. Got it. So it's it's not fundamental new. It's it's not. I'm I'm not trying to to disparage it. it it's both like a, a technique and and new architectures. <laughs> like you know, that, that's the technique of ha- having mixture of experts, right? Like now you yeah you have these two dimensions that you can scale independently and so on. And sparsity in general is kind of a. I was going to say it's a mindset, but you know it's a it's a general technique, right? <laughs> but if you're just a practitioner or you want to use them and like you don't care too much about 
figuring things out, then I recommend using sort of the architectures that people have figured out and that, you know, we at Google did. Right, right. And what I'm hearing is not fundamentally incompatible with existing things. You just have to be careful in how you apply it and yeah. follow along with some of the, the learnings that this paper articulates and what will surely come after. Yeah, exactly. So the same way, I guess, the same way we have different architectures like CNNs, transformers like BERT, GPT, mm -hmm. and others, you can specify all of those architectures, right? Mm -hmm. In that paper, we worked with uh, encoder-decoder transformer models. Mm -hmm. And so our recommendations are kind of general, but also mostly applied to encoder-decoder models. But if you were to specify a convnet, you would have to do something slightly different, you know? Yeah. And so it's kind of like a new, it's like a new class in the same way that like it opens a new dimension for scaling uh, these models. You can take any architecture and make it sparse or not sparse, basically. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. We had a couple of other things that we wanted to talk about. And, and, you know, maybe one we can jump into is, and it follows a little bit from talking about language models, but you are, yeah, you've got some research interest in kind of retrieval problems and alignment problems mm -hmm. in that space. Let's talk a little bit about what you've seen on the retrieval side. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the problem and, and why it interests you. Yeah, so one thing I said when we were talking about sparse models is that one of the benefits of increasing the number of parameters, that has two impacts, two factors, right? Like first you have additional compute at training and inference time. Mm -hmm. And so the model is smaller in a way, but you also have increased memorization of the training data. Again, there's this theory that more parameters corresponds to more knowledge. Knowledge, right. And so rather than simply scaling the model size, one alternative is to equip models with the ability to directly access a large database when performing predictions. Mm -hmm. And so this is also like what a recent line of work is exploring, just like retrieval from large databases as a complementary to simply scaling language models. Mm -hmm. And so there are a few sort of like different directions. The first one is Retrieving from the training data set. There's this recent paper called Retro, like uh, Retrieval Enhanced Transformer from friends at DeepMind, where they augment the training set with, they augment each chunk of the training set with its K nearest neighbors from the training database. And so during training and also at inference, the model has access to these neighbor chunks and can utilize them when making predictions. And so what they find is that you can match the performance of much larger language models with much smaller language models. So I think in their papers, they, they say, you know, we have like comparable results as GPT-3 with a model that's 25 times smaller. And so, you know, of course, this retrieval process adds some latency and some, some complexity, but this kind of like scaling gains, like 25x, also very exciting and that's yeah, something else to explore besides just scaling or like sparsity. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's pretty interesting. There's one thing even more recent that consists in like retrieving from the web, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, when you retrieve from a fixed training database, you're not going to be up to date with the world's latest knowledge and events, right? Mm -hmm. There's this aspect of generalization that scaling doesn't help with. It's like temporal generalization. Like if your model was trained in 2019, it's not going to know about 2021. Mm -hmm. 
you could argue that like a good enough model can predict the future, but I don't think we're there yet. So, mm -hmm. so what people have proposed is to continuously update a database with the latest state of the world and the latest knowledge, but that's basically the internet, mm -hmm. right? So what you can do is like outsource document retrieval to the web by using a search engine like Microsoft Bing or Google search. Mm -hmm. And yeah, learn, have your language model learn to interact with the web to retrieve documents that help for predictions. And so there's this recent paper from OpenAI that I really like called WebGPT that does just that, where, you know, they have humans navigate the web to answer questions. So they collect demonstrations from how humans use the web, and then they train a language model to replicate that. And so similarly, they show that like a much smaller model can match performance of much larger models and that this uh, retrieval process helps in factual accuracy, truthfulness, coherence, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's also very promising. Are they, these ideas in the case of the, the data set or the web, are we primarily using retrieval augment generation or... Seems that one way to, to use retrieval is to augment generation, right? You mm -hmm. reach out to some data set, you get some chunk of text, and that gives you a little bit more richness to manipulate when you're trying to spit something out. Another way is to think about the data set as, as you described earlier, kind of a pure knowledge store that you're kind of, I think it was like operating on when you're trying to make an inference decision. Yeah. Do you see aspects of both of those? I think what I'm trying to get at is how and when the data is being used and maybe pulling it back to this analogy, how kind of pure the database is. To what degree does the database really knowledge as opposed to augmenting expressiveness later? It's mostly the, the latter. Like okay. in, this paper, in this recent talks, the retrieval knowledge base is just your training data set. Mm -hmm. or whatever the web gives you. Yeah. And so this is going to be very noisy. This isn't like sort of entity in, entity knowledge bases where you have person, date of birth, like country, right? This is just like you find mm -hmm. the nearest, you find the top K nearest neighbors in all of your training corpora. Mm -hmm. And you use that to have additional context when making predictions. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's kind of enough to get really good results. Could be that you get better results with sort of a more curated database to retrieve from, but I think that uh, your efforts are and budget are is better spent uh, somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We also mentioned alignment and those problems. Can you share a bit about what you're seeing there? Yeah, so, you know, these large language models are kind of becoming the, the Swiss army knife of uh, NLP. They have fairly amazing like transfer learning capabilities, the few shot or zero shot setup even. So you, know, you train on a lot of text, mostly coming from the internet. And then at inference, the model is doing pretty good at like random tasks that weren't really part of the training set. But there's one sort of issue here is that the pre-training objective that we use to pre-train these language models is basically predict the next token right, from a web page in the internet. That's where most of the data comes from. And so that objective is quite different from the objective follow the user's instructions, preferably in a helpful and safe manner. And so as a result, like large language models, 
spite of all the impressive results that they've led to, are not that good at following people's instructions, right? Mm -hmm. That's like a misalignment between how you train them and how we intend to use them. Yeah. And so there's been efforts towards sort of aligning these models with human intent by fine-tuning them on data we care about. So there are kind of like two lines of work in that direction. The first one is called instruction tuning, mm -hmm. where during fine-tuning, you're going to augment each task with a verbal description of the task itself, right? So if you fine-tune on translation data, you're going to be like, translate from you know English to French, then you're going to have your English sentence and the target is going to be the French sentence. Mm -hmm. And by having enough of these tasks that are described verbally, you the hope is that at inference, the model can generalize across new tasks that are unseen during fine-tuning. So using that example of translating again, maybe at inference, I could be like, hey, translate from legalese to regular simple English. And because the model kind of knows what it's supposed to do when translating, now it just have it just has to sort of understand okay what is legalese and what is regular simple English to perform that new unseen task. There's a similar story here that you get equivalent performance as much larger models. I think this paper called T0 reports 16 like similar performance with models that are 16 times smaller. Mm -hmm. The second line of work in that direction is more direct alignment where it's mostly driven by OpenAI and Anthropic. What they did is that they basically gave access to these models. They gave, they gave access to these models to people that just try to use them. Mm -hmm. And they generate, like, they collect actual data of how users want to use these models. Yeah, basically, it's kind of like assistant-like data, right? Like, help me plan a wedding or, like, help me write a marketing campaign for yeah. Red Bull or, or, or whatsoever. And so... They use this approach called reinforcement learning from human preferences, mm -hmm. which is a two-step process. So the first step is to collect comparison data based on human preferences. And so, for example, you can output, you know, let's say, so a human inputs some prompt to a model and the model will propose two candidate outputs. The human selects which one it prefers. And so that process creates a feedback a data set of comparison data, right? Like given an input and two candidate outputs, this is the one that is preferred by humans. So what you can do is train a model on that data. This is called a reward model because you're going to use that model as to provide reward to sort of a like a reinforcement learning algorithm. And so the second step of that process is to train your language model with a policy gradient method with the reward model providing these rewards. And by sort of going through that process iteratively, you get very close to the outputs matching what the humans would have preferred. And it's kind of like aligning models with uh, human intention. And there's a similar story here that like, actually the results in, in these works are pretty impressive. It's like, yeah, rather than having GP3, you can have a model that's 100 times smaller. Mm -hmm. And by aligning it with human intentions with this two-step process of like collecting comparison data and using it to to train your language model with reinforcement learning, you get better or like preferred outputs to a model that's 100 times uh, larger. Okay. So I think something that I'm kind of really looking forward to is when people are going to combine all these recent advancements, <laughs> figure out which dimensions to scale, like yeah, I think once you do mixture of experts, like alignment, retrieval, 
spend a lot of money and you, you scale everything, you figure out how to do it the proper way. Yeah. You know, I think we're looking at something that's going to be fairly amazing. So pretty excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the name of the game. We've got point optimizations heading in different directions, and we just need to figure out how to combine them all to create some more general version of intelligence. Yeah, exactly. That that kind of research is pretty costly, though, because <laughs> it's very hard to extrapolate performance at smaller scale. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, one thing that I saw again and again when I was at Google is like, you know, you see a paper that poses a new idea or like a new architecture. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, let me try it. And then you try it at like Google scale, mm-hmm. which is usually, you know, an order of magnitude larger than academic scale, right? Yeah. And you find that like, yeah, the improvements completely vanish. Hmm. Is that a reproducibility problem or is that a fundamentally the method just didn't scale? It's a fundamental issue. Yeah. But I think there's really like sort of a, there's something deeper behind that fact is that, yeah, it's very hard to extrapolate techniques. Also people, I think this kind of stuff would be uh, seen if people were, you know, designing scaling laws in a very rigorous way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that takes a lot of time. And usually people just say like, hey, the baseline is this, I did that and I get a better number. But we have no idea what happens when you scale. I also think, you know, like this whole like scaling direction has made rigorous baselines much harder. Mm-hmm. Having rigorous baselines much harder because these models are pretty costly, both in time and, uh, of course, financially. And so each data point that you consider for your ablation study, you know, must, might cost you weeks or, right. you know, hundreds to millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, research has kind of evolved from like this very, at least in that field, right? Like from very rigorous settings to let's just try to figure out among a lot of noise what works best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I'd say, you know, even there was, there was already a lack of rigorous baselines, even in other fields. So <laughs> that just doesn't help. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, that brings into, brings into light or the conversation, a lot of issues that we've been talking about in the field, the, the lack of rigor overfitting on mm-hmm. a few data sets. Yeah. All these I think are accentuated by the scale that you're trying to operate at. Yeah, I wrote a paper about this last year, actually, like that showed that in computer vision, a lot of the improvements that researchers boasted about came from training tricks as opposed to the so-claimed architectural improvements, mm-hmm. and that you could still get very competitive results by simply scaling ResNets, which are like six years old or seven years old, mm-hmm. that you didn't need like all this like fancy new stuff. It was just like, yeah, take the architecture that you know works, figure out how to scale it properly and train it properly. And usually you're going to be very close to state of the art. Mm -hmm. You know, trying all these architectural tricks, like doesn't matter basically. Mm. And I think that's something that people have come to us. Like now there's much less architectural research. Yeah. People use transformers most of the time. Mm -hmm. No, there's this mixture of experts thing, which is kind of like, which I think is a big enough change that like, it's a real change. It's not like, you know, hey, use a depth-wise convolution here instead of a convolution there. Like, um, yeah. But yeah, I think with that scale, with the scaling direction, like we're kind of moving away from the academic research setup, right? That's like a, 
widening gap between what can be done in academia and industry. Yeah. And only a few organizations have uh, the technical expertise or the financial leeway to, to support this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see that gap closing anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, there, there are a few like open efforts, Elether, AI and uh, Big Science. Mm-hmm. Stanford is also starting a, yeah, exactly. Stanford is also starting a group. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think some people are rallying and realizing, hey, we can't, just let big companies have access to those, but they're a little bit behind. And like, yeah, there's there are qu- kind of questions about how long you can sustain that kind of research and these kind of costs. Mm-hmm. Well, Erwan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. For uh, those who are still with us, this interview has been a long time in the works, and Erwan's continued to, to advance his research. And I'm, I'm super glad we were able to finally get together. Uh, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.